You're listening to Just, stories about the people working to build thriving communities rooted in justice. I'm Jess Averhart, co-founder of Black Wall Street Homecoming. And I'm Rob Shields, executive director of the ReCity Network. All right, look, so here's why we're here. We're here to get proximate, we're here to listen, we're here to process, and we're here to help you process. But here's what we're not gonna do. We're not gonna be preachy because we don't have all the answers and we will never make you feel like an outsider. Keeping with the theme of sharing, we always want to acknowledge the whole person and that starts with our personal, personal check-in. Yeah, let's do it. You know what we haven't done in a while? We haven't sung ourselves into the podcast. Should we do that? Yeah. <laughs> Is that the right octave? Am I hitting it right? Close enough. Because it's kind of a mess anyways. I hope that made somebody smile when they were listening and they just, they weren't ready to be serenaded by us this morning. But hello, friend. How are you doing? Oh my gosh. I'm so good. I hope you are. You look great. You're like oh, great. smiley and happy this morning. Look at you. I feel like this one's going to be good because we're more synced up heading into this conversation than normal. For our listeners who don't know, Jess and I have a, a friendship that exists outside of this podcast. And I got a phone call from a, a mutual friend of ours. Mm-hmm. And she called me, you happen to be in the car. And so I just got the joy of just being a fly on the wall while you guys are, I don't know what you're doing, <laughs> running errands, maybe going to where you are now, which I won't yep. spoil your personal check-in, but y'all sounded like you were having the time of your life. And I just got to be a part of it for like five, 10 minutes. And it was yep. a joy. I, it made my day. I really want you to know that. Like I'm sincerely, <laughs> and you can probably hear the laughter in my voice. I was yep. smiling the whole time. Yeah. And it was that just was so great. cool to hang out with you guys. So where in the world are you? I feel like you were heading somewhere. Yeah, in the car. yeah, no, that's such a good question. We were heading somewhere. It was just fun because you called her. I know she, right. you, you were returning our call. And I was like, oh, this is great because it's Rob. It's our friend. And yet you had no idea I was going to jump into that conversation. So it was tons of fun. I am in uh, Winston-Salem, right outside Winston-Salem, North Carolina, at this beautifully renovated, just immaculately appointed, just gorgeous. I can't even, there's not enough adjectives to tell you where I am, but it's this beautiful space called the China Berry Barn. Mm. And it is a, it's not a retreat center officially. It's, it's really just an Airbnb, but it's so gorgeous. It's got a meditation room and it has horses and a llama and a little tiny pig outside. <laughs> so when Steve Swain, I don't know if, if you all had a chance to check out that episode on rest when he was really challenging us to think about how the intersection of rest and restoration and justice really matter. I took that to heart and I took my team to this location for two days and we're getting ready to plan a big women's leadership summit for the first of the year, but we really want to do it in a place where we can be inspired and learn about each other and love each other. And so if you get a chance, those that are listening to it, Google the China Berry Barn in Winston-Salem, you will not be disappointed. It is, it is the absolute hands down, most stunning Airbnb you'll ever stay in. It's gorgeous. Yeah, you were showing me, you were giving me a little virtual tour before we press record. And I was, I mean, if the bookshelves that you had in the background uh, were any indication, it's a, it seems like a really restful location. And you're there with good people who are refreshing and life-giving, which is as important, if not more important. So I'm hoping it brings it to life. Yeah, it brings it all, it brings it all together. So, so thanks for asking. So that's what we were doing. We were traveling here and we'll be here for another day and then off we go back into the real world. But it's been nice to push pause a little bit. How are you, friend? Where are you at? Are you resting and retreating? Are you working and saving the world? I'm a little jealous of you. No, I'm not, I'm not at a, a retreat center. I'm not at an Airbnb, but 
it looks amazing. And this is, <laughs> we were joking offline, the theme of rest is so pervasive. I'm like, I feel like the, the man upstairs is trying to send me a message. I need to hop on that website and do some perusing. So I think uh, he is. I'm sending you the link, period, dot. All right, thank you. Well, You're please, well, maybe we'll drop that in the show notes and just share the love with our listeners. <laughs> Seriously, message received, Lord. Up. I hear you. I hear you. I need to do a better job of rest. No, here's my update. This is actually kind of cool. Speaking on the theme of rest, although I haven't gone to an Airbnb recently, got four young kids at home. It's hard to pull away in this season. The book we mentioned a couple episodes ago, John Mark Comer, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which feels like has come up in maybe multiple episodes in the last month. I got to hear him speak in person. He came and gave a talk at my church to the staff. My my wife's on staff with the church we attend. And so I got to go piggyback off that. I I was like, oh man, I got to come hear this guy. That book has been so transformational to our our rhythm of rest, like to borrow Joy Curry's phrase last week, we've begun to Sabbath hard now after reading this book. And man, we're drawing Sunday, circling on a calendar and really looking forward to it every week as a time of rejuvenation as a family and just to get recentered in rest and worship. So it's been, that's been really cool. Hearing him was amazing. I'll drop you the link if I can get the audio for it, Jess, because I think you'll, it's really, he didn't disappoint. He kind of repackaged some stuff from the book, but also expanded on it. And it was just, it's one of those people where like you, it's a breath of fresh air and 45 minutes, you could listen to him for four more hours. That was what it was like. And it was really good, good for the soul. So I'm coming in rested. I don't have a claw tub, claw hand. What's the phrase? Claw fish. I don't even, (laughs) I don't even know how to say it. See, that's how far away I am from it. And yeah, I need you to, you need to come, come on now. (laughs) It's claw and I'll get you some bath, bath bombs, right? So you'll be ready to go. That sounds good. I'll take you up on that. That sounds like a fun Bath bomb sounds like an aggressive thing. I don't know. That's a little scary. Okay. Bubble bath? My kids, yeah, I know know bubble bubble baths. My kids take bubble baths all the time. I don't know about (laughs) incorporating bombs into the mix. All right. That's true. Well, I don't know how to pivot from the conversation we just had to welcome on our guest. I think we just do it. I just want to do it. I'm so excited for our listeners to hear. And I'm sure he has some thoughts on rest. But I'm going to welcome our new friend, Daniel Hill, onto the podcast. Daniel, are you there? Can you hear us? Are you scared off by our weird introduction? Are you you still committed to having this interview? (laughs) That's so scary to talk about rest. I'm very scared. He's an anti-rester. He's like, I'm going to come in and say rest all the time. Daniel, we're really privileged to have you joining us. We spoke offline here briefly, but... I've been following your work for a really long time there in Chicago. Man, Chicago's got some cool stuff. And we, we've been able to tap a vein because we've been able to have some really, really sweet conversations and really challenging conversations from folks in your city that have been really helpful for us as we think through justice issues here in North Carolina. Our mutual friend now, David Swanson, I know you guys swim in some similar waters there in Chicago, but... We've just been, it's been a joy and we're going to just keep the good times rolling. Maybe we're just going to ask you for your Chicago Rolodex before we let you leave for three good new interviews (laughs) that we should have. But for those of you who don't know Daniel's work and aren't familiar with it, Daniel serves as the senior pastor for River City Community Church in Chicago, and he founded River City in 2003. So they're actually coming up on their 20th anniversary, which is saying something. I Mm -hmm. feel like maybe there's like a pre-COVID appreciation for that kind of longevity. And now like a current COVID, you're like, whoa, making it two years anywhere is hard. 20 years is almost now unfathomable. So congratulations on that. I hope you do Mm -hmm. spend some time celebrating and resting in even just the Lord's provision and having you make it 20 years in a single place. That's pretty incredible. And we're really looking forward to the wisdom you bring from that type of longevity in, in a single location. But so Daniel was led and inspired with their leadership team, by a call towards spiritual renewal 
social justice and economic justice in the Humble Park neighborhood in Chicago. So similar to when David Swanson was on, he's drawn a circle on a map, which is a conversation and a thread that we've been pulling on for the last couple of weeks of, of really place-based work. I think Daniel and the River City mm-hmm. community really embody this. He's also the author of Wide Awake, an honest look at what it means to be white, in which he builds a pathway towards racial awakening, starting first with the biblical mandate of reconciliation, incorporating historical roots of white supremacy, and then weaving in his own life's journey of learning and understanding the system of race. He followed that book up by White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems that Divide Us. I've read both of them. I would strongly recommend you do the same. If you are new to both of those books, they've been foundational for me. Uh, as a white person really leaning into mm. what does it mean for me to be involved in racial justice work and doing it well over the long haul. Pastor Daniel also holds a doctorate of ministry from Northern Theological Seminary, a master's in biblical studies from Moody Theological Institute, a certificate in faith-based community development from Harvard Divinity School, and a BS in business from Purdue University. I feel like that would maybe have taken 20 years to do by itself. So I'm not, you don't look that old. So I'm not sure how, we're going to need to talk about the time hacks. <laughs> maybe you have a time machine we don't know about. You and your wife, Elizabeth, who is a psychology professor, established in her own right, as a psychology major. Sounds like we might need to have her on the interview, to interview next. Do a, a one-two punch. They're loving parents to their two children, Xander and Gabriella. All right, man, if our listeners weren't excited beforehand, I hope they are now. There's going to be a lot to chew on in this interview, as if you can't tell already. So, Daniel, we're just going to turn the floor over to you. Would love for you to start us out. We love just beginning each of these with your story. And so you mentioned it before, kind of your own, in your book, you unpack this a little bit, your own journey of, quote, learning and understanding the system of race. So I'd love to just start there. Could you just, obviously, you can't do it justice. People need to pick up the book and get the long version, but kind of the the shorter version, the trailer to that movie, if you will, kind of tell us a little bit about your story of growing in consciousness around the system of race, your justice journey. We'd love to just unpack that a little bit for our listeners before we kind of dive and move further into the conversation. Well, thanks to both of you. I'm really happy to be here. Always been a Chicagoland guy, so I actually thought I would move growing up. I never did, so <laughs> I've always been here. So I was the, I'm a preacher's kid, so I've been in church since I was a baby, we didn't always use the term evangelical, but certainly most of what white evangelical is, is kind of what I was immersed in growing up. So as I now do a lot of work of keeping the parts that are right as rooted in scripture and <laughs> critiquing a lot of the other stuff that's been my journey since I was born, kind of straight away from church for a whole bunch of reasons during high school and college. And then more for social reasons ended up, there's a booming mega church called Willow Creek Community Church back in those days. And I was part of an internet startup company that brought me like literally four blocks from Willow Creek and started attending there when I was 22 and really came back to faith at Willow. And through through its own kind of strange set of circumstances, they heavily recruited me to come on staff. And that's how I did went full circle from being a pastor's kid that didn't want to be in church, ended up working at a church. They couldn't have been more different. I grew up mostly in house churches, and I was working at one of the largest evangelical mega churches in the country. So I was 24 working there, was officiating one of my, it, it had only officiated a handful of weddings, but officiated my first ever cross cultural wedding as a white woman. And then a man whose parents were from India and had immigrated here. And he was the first, and, you know, him and his sister were the ones who had first kind of grown up here in the States. And so, kept telling me about how it was going to be a deep dive into Indian culture at his wedding rehearsal in particular. And that was indeed the case. And his side of the family put all that on. So the dancing, the food, the kind of unique wedding customs was really all very exhilarating for me. And at the end of that wedding rehearsal, I came up to him and I said, Hey, I just want to thank you 
for this experience. Uh, it's times like this where I wish I had a culture. I'm jealous that you have so much culture. Mm-hmm. Wish I had a culture like that of my own. And this typically fun-loving guy who very rarely had a serious bone in his body at this, in the middle of dancing at his rehearsal, got very serious. He put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Daniel, not only do you have a culture, but when your culture comes in contact with other culture, it almost always wins. One of the best wedding gifts you could ever give me would be to become serious about learning your own culture. I look back over the course of my life, there's probably 50 moments where I should have had a a reckoning, you know, and the beginning is awakening. And I don't really feel the need to talk about privilege much in this conversation, but I do like the way my friend, Pastor Julian DeChazier, defines privilege. He's a pastor here in Hyde Park, and he says privilege is simply the ability to walk away. And uh, when you look at that dimension of privilege, I realize even as my life had its quite its own fair share of challenges and things we had to overcome, there, when it came to racial conversations, I just was defined by privilege of every time there was an opportunity to walk away, I did. And just for whatever reason, this was actually probably one of the smaller things that could have been an awakening. But for whatever reason, this was the one where God really got to hold my attention to say, he just opened a door for you that you need to walk through. And for the first time in my life, I didn't exercise privilege and walk away from it. I really kind of sat in the discomfort of this twofold thing he said, not only do you have a culture, which felt absurd to me at the time to say there's such a thing as white culture, but then the really discomforting statement that your culture wins when it comes to contact with others. And so that's really what started the journey for me. I, he created immense unrest in that little statement that he made at his wedding rehearsal. He, he created immense unrest for me that once you start trying to untangle that ball of yarn, right, like you realize it goes deep, 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 deep. Yeah, man, that's that is a powerful moment. I think we all can, hopefully, if we're fortunate, we have someone who can speak that kind of truth in ways and lovingly help to to open our yeah. eyes. And I think in your book, you, you mentioned kind of using this buzzword of privilege. I think you do a really beautiful job of unpacking some of these these buzzwords that are kind of culturally relevant, but also framing them with the history of how we got here, weaving in history of our of our nation, history of the American church, how those two things intersect, kind of the right. damage that, that whiteness has done when we carry that ignorance, right, with us, which I think white people, unless we're fortunate, right. usually it, it takes, it, it's not from an early age, unless our parents are, are really diligent. That was not my story. My story is more like yours as well. So I want to do something here. Yeah. You, we're going to go, we're going to start off 10,000 foot and then land, land on the ground because I want to, I want to land with your work in Chicago and the very place-based intentionality that you've done drawing that circle on the map. Before we do that, mm-hmm. I kind of like to zoom out and kind of get your thoughts on this season that we feel like we're still in, but has cont- is continually evolving. Over the summer, this issue, this hot button topic is critical race theory, right? It was, it was everywhere. You couldn't, it was on Fox News. It was on CNN. It was obviously being talked about very differently depending on your media outlet of choice. But it really became this lightning rod topic. And especially here in our backyard at UNC, Chapel Hill, with this controversy surrounding Nicole Hannah-Jones's tenure and all, all the fallout that if you were following that, I think that made headlines wherever you were, but especially mm-hmm. here in North Carolina. Having sure. written two books on the subject yep. of whiteness, where you kind of take readers through that journey of what it means to be white in America and in the American church. I'd love to ask you first, for our listeners who may have missed those headlines, just a quick, maybe a quick overview of like, hey, what what is the deal with, with CRT or critical race theory? And, and kind of briefly, brief synopsis of it so that we can give people a little bit of the vernacular needed for this conversation. But the second part of the question is when race makes the news like that, like it has so often in the last two years, what are we missing from the subtext? What stories do white people like you and I bring to the table that oftentimes prevent us from seeing clearly? That's the two-part conversation. Kind of what, tell us about the CRT and from your understanding 
And then also, what are those gaps in the stories we tell ourselves as white people that really are a hindrance in seeing and analyzing buzzwords of the moment like CRT in, in a holistic and helpful way? Yeah. It's like hard for me to talk about this without not getting emotional because there's many things that we're challenged by and facing as a nation. But if you look at it, it's particularly in the church, the Christian church, I actually don't think there's something I feel more sad about. I don't think there's something that's more tragic nationally right now than the response of the larger white church to this idea of critical race theory. I, there are a few things I feel more sad about and feel honestly more despairing about than that. So I'll be honest to check in like at a very holistic level to begin with for kind of parsing a little bit. There's a lot of threads to this that make it complicated. One thing I found over and over again that those of us who are white just in general, certainly white Christian, just even the middle word of the critical race theory, most of us who are white don't have a good sense of understanding what race even is. We think we do, but a whole bunch of words get kind of converged together, which kind of convolutes it. I remember when I, going all the way back to my wedding story, when I started trying to understand this, actually, I think there's a lot that's changed mm. and there's a lot that hasn't. Critical race theory is a demonstration of one of the things that hasn't changed. I was 24 on that journey. I'm 48 now to answer your earlier question, how old am I? Uh, so I'm 40 now. So it was 24 years ago that I was wrestling with this stuff. I was stunned by the fact, again, I grew up in evangelicalism. I, lo I loved my church. I loved God. I listened to sermons voraciously. I, I read voraciously on whatever the subject matter was. When it came to understanding race, I was stunned to discover that nobody in white evangelical circles ever preached on race. Like no, and I mean, I listened to all the big preachers. So I, whenever, whatever the subject matter was, in fact, then it was tapes, it was cassette tapes, which is embarrassing, right? But I would find what the series was and I'd order the cassette tapes, right? Whatever. When I was thinking about sex, when I was thinking about sexual purity, when I was thinking about money, when I was thinking about relationships, I would order the series from different headline preachers to see how they tackle it. I completely, nobody had ever done a series on race. Nobody, none of the big preachers. You could occasionally find an application point that's like, we don't mistreat somebody because they're of a different skin tone or something like that. But nobody ever tried to like take on race as a construct, as a concept, as a system in how to think about that biblically and respond to it biblically. So right away, something started to feel really off that Clearly, this is a huge thing in society and in every circle I'd ever been in, in evangelical spaces, the belief was that the Bible should inform how we think and respond to everything, right? And so how is it that there's this huge thing of race and racism? <laughs> Nobody in the Christian spaces even tried, right? So that was alarming. The second thing that was alarming is that the more questions I asked, the more I got like talking tos. I would be warned over and over of the dangers of talking about this, of the slippery slope that I'd be, that they'd be concerned I was going to slip down. It's almost like there was these programmed responses that like those who had cautioned me, it's not, it's almost it was like they didn't understand why they were even so scared of it, but it was the boogeyman. It was the boogeyman back then. It's the boogeyman now, right? Like when you try to take an honest biblical perspective view on race and racism, it sets off all kinds of alarms in white Christian spaces, which is just troubling beyond belief. So I had to go outside of church to learn about race. I had to go to the academy which is problematic because in the academy, they often think lowly of Christian, right? So if you're in Christian spaces, you're warned of the slippery slope and nobody talks about race. If you go to the academy, you learn a lot about race, but they think you're an idiot that you still subscribe to Christianity, right? And so th that's why it took so long to piece this stuff together. It could have been a much faster journey, but you know, I was facing an uphill battle at every step of the way for my own people, for my own white Christian people, which is just its, its own whole thing, right? So when people in the academy, the first thing they would always say is race is a social construct. This work won't make sense to you until you understand that. In that, I mean, I can say that fluently now because I understand what they mean, but back then that was a super confusing idea. I'm like, no, 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 God created human beings. You can't say race is a human construct. They're like, we're not talking about the origin of humankind. We're talking about the origin of race. Like, Wait, 
what? Right. And so could this is, we don't really, I'm going to move on, but this could be its own whole conversation point, right? What is race and why is it so diabolical? And why is it an absolute threat to Christ and kingdom? Like when a white person can't answer that clearly, they have no chance um, in this conversation, right? Uh, If they don't, if the starting point is that, let me say in the positive, you must have a starting point. I believe this is the only starting point from a biblical perspective. The starting point must be that God has created human beings. Therefore, God has given human beings value, inherent value. Race is a construct created by human beings expressly for the purpose of evil. It renames human value according to a racial hierarchy that puts whiteness at the top and blackness at the bottom and then names everybody's value in between these two. It's diabolical, evil, complete threat to the coming kingdom of God. If you're a Christian, like this should not be controversial. If you're a Christian, this should be your starting point. Race is a construct made by human beings to defy God, to play God, to advance evil. And so to be a Christian is to hate it. But to be a Christian is to be standing up. It don't matter what racial background you are. To be a Christian is to hate this thing because it's built on lies, it's built on evil, it's built on dehumanization and exploitation of people. Like this should be the starting point, right? If that was the starting point, we would have a very different response to critical Mm -hmm. race theory. (laughs) Because all critical race theory is secular folks agreeing with that same premise, that racism is super dangerous and that it's an organizing reality in society and that people of all backgrounds should stand up against it. If there was ever something Christians should be able to say amen to, it's the premise. Now, you don't have to agree with the approach. This is where, especially those on the right, just make me crazy. If a secular group would rise up and say, we don't like abortion and we want to stop it, we're going to do a critical abortion theory movement that says we don't like abortion, we're going to stop it. Nobody on the right would care if the tactics matched up or not. They would just say, yes, like you're standing up against something evil, and I'm glad you're standing up against something evil, even if we don't agree on the tactics. But with critical race, who cares if you don't agree with the tactics? Who cares? Like the starting point is a moral agreement that race is evil and dangerous and should be confronted. And of course, we get in the technical critical race theory started in law. It was starting by saying racism is present law. It moved to other academic fields. But again, the premise is simply that racism is real and that it should be confronted. And it's just, it is literally ludicrous that we cannot agree with that starting point. And it is the repetitive pattern that happens in the white church, right? Like, I know probably many of your listeners are like legitimately struggling with maybe even some, probably lots are in churches that are saying critical race theory is super dangerous. I want to say this sensitively, but I also want to say it truthfully. It is ludicrous that as churches, we are more concerned with a secular approach to confronting race than we are about race itself. It is so disheartening that we can more quickly rally around an approach to confronting white supremacy than we are to rallying around confronting white supremacy. And that really is what's happened. I, that's, I, I think that's an objective statement. We are clearly far more concerned with an academic approach to confronting racism than we are to confronting racism itself. And that's that to me, that's just telling. That is what always happens in the white church is it's no different than I was 24 and they're warning me about the going down the slippery slopes. I, shouldn't you be w- more worried about me advancing white supremacy than me going and learning about white supremacy? <laughs> like, shouldn't you be more worried about the captivity of me not seeing the impact of me of it than me trying to discover a biblical discipleship model for <laughs> uprooting within me? The, the response of the white church right now to critical race there is really no different than what I experienced when I was 24. So I'm starting to get to that age. It's like, wow, I, I see what the old folks are saying. Stuff just don't change. It just reinvents itself. And it's just the same thing with a different dress on, right? I mean, it just, it just keeps marching on. So that, that, that's my honest, deep grief and concern about critical race theory is the starting point. Everybody's clear. The starting point behind critical race theory is that race and racism is real and should be confronted. There should just be no, that should not create discomfort for people. And even if you don't agree with the tactics, and actually, I do agree with them, but let's just say, like, even if you don't agree with the tactics, so what? Like, the starting point 
is a moral confrontation with one of the most evil systems that's present in the world. So yeah, there we go. <laughs> Stop there for now. That's great. I don't have a follow-up question. I just want to say that it seems so clear. When you laid it out, I loved how you laid it out. It was very easy to understand. I think it seems like so logical. And for me, when I hear you talk through it and you're like, come on, this is the basics. And if you can't agree with this, we can't enter the conversation. And what it says, it reminds me, and we've said this before, Rob, and when we've had other guests on the show, is that in this country, we are not practiced at interrogation, interrogating our own beliefs. We accept and take on what we've always known to be true or how we were raised and all these, but we are not practiced as a society to do sort of this interrogation of ourselves and our own beliefs, such that you said at the beginning with your friend who said the gift that you would give me is if you would actually go and figure out your own culture and the impact that your culture has had on others, because that is not what we do. Like black community is always asked to like figure out, you know, we have to do our history and people are doing history on our history, but what about your history? (laughs) What about whiteness? And this idea of interrogating ourselves it really looks at pride right in the face and this ego right in the face. And I think that is very personal. And I do think it's going to take very strong leadership and these kinds of conversations and podcasts like this and others to give people this permission and get them comfortable with interrogation of themselves and myself included. But yeah, the concepts are clear and they make a lot of sense. But this is a very personal journey that people aren't willing to take because it is not one comfortable and it isn't common. We don't do it. We're very comfortable looking outward and criticizing and interrogating others, but not our own cultural impact. That's all. I just want to say that. No question. And to piggyback off that, Jess, we don't have to as white people. That's the whole point. Like the discomfort you're naming, Daniel, you described privilege as the ability to walk away. And the sad part is that more often than not, that's what we decide to do. I don't think the black community has as much of a choice to know their history because the, the walking away is not uh, it's not an option. You got to know it versus we we can be completely ignorant going about our lives and stick our head in the sand if we so choose or read the headline like you're saying, Daniel, but get completely distracted by the wrong conversation instead of trying to find what are, what are those moral agreements that we can serve as foundations to build off of. Jess, I'll kick it to you to keep the conversation going. We'll, go, we'll shift things a little bit. Yeah, let's get into, so yeah, thanks for zooming us out, Rob, and kind of setting up this idea of CRT, critical race theory. Let's talk about this idea of neighborhood development. You named neighborhood development as one of your three pillars as a church, right? Along with worship, Mm -hmm. reconciliation. So you got worship, reconciliation, neighborhood development. And you talk about this Mm -hmm. relationship that you have, this partnership that you have with Cameron Elementary and what it's taught you. I'd love for you to share back to our listeners, give us some context around that, how you think Mm -hmm. about that. Help us understand what that engagement is and how that partnership lends itself to sort of your greater lessons and how you think about your work. Yeah, one of the voices from afar that's been very influential and formative for me is Dr. Marion Edelman Wright, the uh, founder of the Children's Defense Fund, and I think just a brilliant yes. thinker and orator and practitioner. And one of her kind of foundational statements that just summarizes some complex truths and a very easy way to grab on is 
She says, in any society, the most vulnerable is children. That's pretty easy to follow. And in our society in particular, the most dangerous place for a child to live is at the intersection of race and poverty. And that's just a very vivid way to describe the reality yeah. of there's a lot about poverty is dangerous. People often say, oh, what about white people in poverty? Yeah, there, there's no question <laughs> that's dangerous. There's a lot about race, even when you're not in poverty, that's super, super dangerous, right? But when you put them together, right, I mean, it creates a mm-hmm. cross-section of vulnerability and exposure that's just really significant, right? And I think that matched with, it's always significant to me that the only time Jesus teaches on the church is Matthew 16, right? When that famous when he asked the disciples who the people say I am, he says, would you say that I am? And then tells Peter upon this confession, I'll build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail. So one of the questions we often asked in our early days of the church is where are the gates of hell most attempting to prevail in society? All right? That's mm-hmm. one of the ways we talked about our identities of church. Like the church is supposed to be located where the gates of hell are attempting to prevail. And sometimes it even feels like it is prevailing. And so Dr. Wright's, Dr. Edelman Wright's language of the intersection of race and poverty became like the clearest way for us to answer that question. This is where as a church we need to be located. Who knows if we can like do anything to like slow the hemorrhage, you know, but like that's at least where we're going to be. We're going to bear witness there. We're going to live there. We're going to learn there. We're going to partner there. Of course, God's already there. There's already so many stakeholders and neighbors and grandmas and parents and principals and nonprofit and pastors already working there. Right? But it was very important for us, even just at an identity level, to say this is where, who we are. We are going to live in an intense intersection of race and poverty. So that just didn't even bring us to Humble Park. Humble Park's a fairly big neighborhood. It's 65,000 people. Even within Humble Park, there's parts that are more dangerous and less dangerous. And so we felt like we need to be right where the intersection is most intense within our community. And then from there, we always wanted to have a spirit of listening and learning. That was non-negotiable. But it's still, it's, it's kind of like, how do you do that, right? It like takes a long time to meet residents and the grandmas and the stakeholders. And so where we kind of quickly landed is a school is really, like schools are built in the, at least in Chicago, and I imagine in most city centers, like schools are just like a huge component of the vitality of everybody there, right? I mean, it's just in our system, in our country, if you don't get a good education, it's just hard to be successful. And so we said, let's just have honest conversations. There was two grammar schools kind of within the area we wanted to be. And we talked with both of them. And this school, we're at Cameron Elementary. There was just kind of an instant kinship where they said, yeah, let's do this together. You, you all do your part as a church and eventually church and nonprofit, and we'll do our part as a school and let's just kind of grow into this. And so we even, even though they're not Christians, we use like covenant kind of language. We tell them like Cameron Elementary is like part of our church. That's part of our church's identity. We're here forever. We're, and we won't dictate what that means. Like we're just going to respond to like whatever that you need the church to be, we're going to be. And so earlier seasons where we had a building, what they most needed was our young adults to be in the classrooms and supporting teachers. As we grew five, six, seven years old, they said, probably the most helpful thing you can do is have a space within walking distance of the school where the kids can go afterwards because you know safety issues are so paramount and continue to help with homework and academic and stuff like that so when we looked for a church building we made it a mandate we will never look for a church building unless it's within walking distance of Cameron elementary and so we eventually found a space and rehabbed that and that's where we worship now and but this place where i am right now tucked in a little storage room because there's like kid stuff happening in every other room right now but so we wanted we even designed the space to like most places most churches work for a church and then you can try to retrofit it for other things we wanted to be the opposite we wanted it to be a community center that we retrofit for church because we wanted this to be a neighborhood place we wanted this to be a place that was part of the overall shalom, the overall flourishment of the neighborhood. But everything we do, everything we do is comes from the relationship with the school. And we're a mixed congregation. We get uh, young urban professionals that come here too. They often have justice ideas. And it just gave us like a really clear governor kind of say like, 
sounds interesting, but we don't decide that stuff the school does. So here's who you can talk to the school and they'll let you know if it's a good idea or not. It like really became a helpful way to like ground the never ending ideas that come from upperly mobile folks who rarely actually have the time and the commitment to that place <laughs> to actually see them through. We didn't really know how to manage that in the early days. Now the school, now this, the relationship with school, if they think it's valuable, then we'll move forward on it. If they don't, sorry, good idea. But if it doesn't fit here, the people who already live here, then you know it is what it is. And so it just, it's been really huge for us to not just say we're listening and learning, but to have something like really concrete, substantial, like the relationship with the folks at the school to filter everything through, whether it be their idea then start, to start with and we just do it, or whether it be something we have an idea for but we always humbly kind of run it by them to see if it fits or not so it's genuinely been very core to every part of our identity as a church yeah i love that i love the intentionality behind how you how you move every day and i think there's a movement around this right we're identifying leadership within community that exists that are closest and most proximate to the challenges but also to the like magic of community, you have to have solid and strong partnership. And I love that you're intentional Mm -hmm. about the ways in which you decided to create the church space, right? So it's community first that also happens to be a church. So well done. I think that Mm -hmm. what I think that the pandemic has exposed a lot of religious organizations, churches, faith groups to be, they were flat footed. Let's just be honest. I think a lot of our organizations were flat footed. The pandemic came and and I can't remember which interview we did. It was maybe it was Joy or the one before that said, if you're asking, what do we need to do in our community when the pandemic hits, that's a bigger problem. Because if you're now asking, oh, we've got all these cracks, we've got all these gaps, what do we do? And you're, you proclaimed that just the day before that you were serving community, now the pandemic, the world shuts down. Now you don't know what to do or how to do it. That says something ab- about the level of investment and involvement and, the, and truly the level of partnership and understanding of those relationships with community in general. So I'm curious if you would give some just some thoughtful advice when you think about a church or a faith-based organization who is saying, gosh, we weren't loving our city well. We were flat-footed during this time of great need. What advice would you give to those organizations on how they could create better relationships, how they could love their city more, and what that change could look like? Because you all have been really, that intentionality comes through in your last response, and I think that's strong. Oh, this is a little bit more theoretical than probably looking for, but uh, I do think there's two big fronts, particularly for white Christian spaces that have to be overcome to, to be real neighbors. The first one is, again, theological. I, I still think more often than not, justice is a scary word in white Christian spaces. It just, it's it's a deep history. Most most white Christians don't even know why they're so scared of it. And there are actually are reasons, but that's a different conversation, right? Like it's just seen as a scary kind of a thing. So just even being oriented towards justice, seeing justice as a discipleship priority is still uncommon in white Christian spaces. So I think there's legit theological wrestling and eventual work that has to happen there of do we actually believe living justly is critical to life in Christ? Because if you don't believe that theologically, you can actually have great execution ideas and they're, they're going to fall, they're going to continue to be flat footed. I think it's a great phrase. You continue to be flat footed because you've got good infrastructure in place, but you don't have a theological conviction that this is Matthew 25 kind of stuff, like that the king expects us to live in a certain kind of a way. And then you can flip to the other side. Sometimes there is that theological conviction, but then the infrastructure is, is undeveloped and consistent mistake that white churches make in this space is not really having dealt with this is where race really becomes a big thing again even if it's not we're not using the term race but there's kind of a white savior white 
I don't want to introduce the word colonial because that's got a whole thing too, but there's ways in which people are sincere. It's not uncommon for white people to be sincere, but dangerous. That's a typical kind of thing, right? And there's great books written on this. So we don't have to get into it, right? I mean, there's Toxic Charity by Bob Lofton and there's When Helping Hurts. That's been so such a bestseller. That's what these are getting to is once a the theological conviction there is how do you organize yourselves in such a way where you're genuinely moving in humility and with a posture of listening and learning and responding, not coming into take the problem that you understand at a five to seven percent level and then use all your academic and educational you know background and the kind of natural inclination that i think is cultural not intrin- i don't think it's intrinsic I think it's cultural but it's cultural i think to think of things like poverty and race in a problem solving kind of a lens so it's very difficult for white folks to turn that off they want to identify the problem as quickly as possible and solve the problem as quickly as possible just how they've been trained to think and if you can't kind of contend with that stuff it's i, I do i, I don't want to like slow things down when it has to. But I do think there's that component to wrestle with too of sincerity is not the same thing is helpful. And so I think there's some training that has to happen. Those two books I mentioned, I think are probably core curriculums on them. Then you get to the point where it becomes about being real neighbors, right? Where you're actually connected to the folks who are in the marginalized, exposed, high-risk places. And it, it becomes basic after that. You just you need to listen and respond. <laughs> but I, I mentioned those first two because I think if those first two get missed on the way, you're not actually ready to do the simple thing like the end neighbor because in ways that you don't fully understand why you're undercutting it and even sabotaging it before it ever has a chance to take off. Yeah. Yes. Sorry, I wanted to just say, I wanted to like double down on that. Yes, yes, and yes. Very, that's so great. I love it. Seems so simple, but man, that formula, that is the formula. Yeah. And that is the right, those are the steps mm. and it's in what the right Joy, order. Our last week, our interview yeah. with Joy Curry, who, who runs a nonprofit here in the area, said she had to become a theologian and a historian. And I think that's kind of what you're hitting at, Daniel, to, to really be a, a good neighbor. Mm-hmm. And, do her work more effectively, she realized, I, I got to go study up. And it sounds like that's exactly what you're saying. Hey, being a good neighbor almost sounds intuitive, but there's a lot that isn't intuitive that you got to go get yourself trained on and aware mm-hmm. of before you move to, because you can do a lot, of, a lot of harm with a lot of good intent, which I think is what you said really well. Daniel, as we, as we land the plane here, one of the themes we've had this season has been the, around this concept of fusion friendships, this idea of forming a relationship across difference. You've already alluded to this with that that aha moment when you were 24 at that wedding, right? Where your friend who pointed out, oh man, a, a blind spot you had that you really needed his insight to point out to you that you weren't going to get that from a white person more than likely. Is there one, I'm sure you've had many, but is there one in particular that comes to mind as we kind of encourage and, and really raise that up as a value? As we talk about systems, in the last two years, I think there's always been this flip side of the coin is we need to be doing this work in relationship as well. It's not that relationships, you know, if you're a white person, go, you know, the, the wrong response is go find a black friend. That's, that's not enough. But it's also not irrelevant either, because you need diverse friendships to be able to help you on this journey. So I guess my question to you is, is there a fusion friendship as you've been on this journey of growing your consciousness around race, justice, that has impacted you the most in this 20-year tenure, really being rooted there in Chicago? Yeah, I I do think it's an important question. We're in a season right now kind of coming back out of COVID 
we've just got a, like a legion of young white people who have started coming to our church who are asking these very questions that are hungry for this, that are hungry for cross-cultural relationships. If I was going to boil down to the essence, I, I agree with you, they are important, but they're not an end in of itself. If, if I was going to really distill it down, when I'm in fact, I just did this yesterday when I was meeting with a couple of white people who are hungry for that. I'm not disagreeing with you that you need cross-cultural relationships, but why? Why do you need them? And it was interesting for how badly they want them. They couldn't answer that question. It's just because that's what you're supposed to do, right? Look, it's a bad look in this day and age to be white and not have cross-cultural friendship. I'm like, but is that, of course, they know that's not the reason why. I think there's an interesting parallel. We don't, as individuals, we don't think of ourselves as like synonymous to like an organization, like a church, but really the journey for a white church is not much different than the journey for a white person individually, right? Like in this day and age, if you're an all white church, every white church wants to become diverse, but why? Like, why do you want to become, but well, you can give the theological answers, right? It's like, we should be unified and living in unity and, the, and, and those aren't incorrect. But what I'm really pressing at is the deeper thing. And this is what most white people are not in touch with. The deepest why should be because, let me use an eye language, I need to be in those kind of relationships because I, Daniel Hill, live in captivity to white supremacy. That's why I need these, because I'm not going to be able to expose areas of captivity on my own. You could be, you could put me into a month long silent retreat, and no matter how deep my times are with God, I'm not going to come out of that much clearer of where I'm in captivity to white supremacy, because that's, you can't do that alone. That's what community is for, right? Community reveals. Community helps you to see it and lovingly move forward. And so that's what I, that's what I tell people, like, until you actually are hungry, for relationships where you actually can learn about your own captivity to white supremacy, you're actually not ready for. That's the hard to hear truth. Just like I would say, it's a white church, right? Why do you want to be diverse? You should be diverse because they'll start helping you to see the reasons you haven't been diverse all the way up till now, right? There's a reason you're a 40-year-old church and you've been white the whole time. And it's not just because of the demographics of your community, right? It's because of all these unseen ways in which white supremacy operates. I'm not talking about being mean and overtly discriminating or anything, right? But there's a dozen ways in which it's operating right now, none of which you could probably name, right? And yet you want non-white people to step into this space that's got dozens of forms of white supremacy that are operating in an unnamed way, and you want them to just kind of quietly roll with that. Well, that's not how it works, right? You should want that because you want transformation. You want life change, right? And you're preparing yourself for what's going to happen when you start bringing people in who can see stuff that you can't see. End of the day, yes, I agree that we should be living in these kind of fusion friendships, but that doesn't need to be the whole of it, but that needs to be a substantial part why a white person would want to be in it because they're inviting things to be seen in them that they couldn't see otherwise. And most of us, if we're honest, don't actually want that. And I just wish most of us would be more honest about that. If we don't want that, we're not ready for that. I wish we wouldn't try to move into diverse friendships. I really wish we wouldn't because we bring harm to the person and ourselves by doing that. But if we do crave it, now that's a different thing. Now you can start to be thoughtful around, what am I going to do? When I start discovering things that I didn't even know were there, there's going to be sadness, there's going to be despair, there's going to be lament, there's going to be shame. What am I going to do when those all stop popping up, start popping up? Because they are for sure going to, the question is never if they're there. <laughs> the question is in what different ways are they there? And what am I going to do as I start to discover them? Yes, I love that. I, this is, that is so good. <laughs> the asking why. Yeah. I mean, listen, this yeah. is so good. Take my glasses on and off during this whole thing. I know, pull it together here. That's so good. Living in captivity of white supremacy. Mm. Lord have mercy. Okay, well, we have a last question. I really wanted to dig in on that a little bit more just because I think, and I don't, we won't because you, you laid it out beautifully. Let's get to the real, let's answer that question. And then I, I think you're right. And this isn't a criticism. This is reality. If you're not ready to be honest about, if you're not ready to be honest about that question, okay, then push pause. If you are ready to be honest yes. with that question and the answer is 
disquieting or there could be a harmful effect of running down that road, hold push pause and do that work. Do this cultural work first before you jump yeah. into the, oh, well, I should because... What did you say? It's it's like the cool, not the cool thing to do, but that's what we need to do. We need to have these relationships. Yeah. We need to have these friendships. I want to be in proximity. I want to say I'm working on a thing. I want to say I'm working yeah. on a thing. But that question, why, is a really tough one. And I think it's the right place to start. So I appreciate you backing us up a little bit and getting us a little bit more clearly focused on how to do that well. I'm going to be using that. It's great. So last question of the day is one that we do every time that we're together. It's how we close out our show. So I want to go back to your book in White Awake. You say specifically that white people need to stop asking, what do I do when it comes to issues around racial justice? And instead, just like you reframed our question before, now we need to say, how well do I see? So not what do I do, but how well do I see? And so, like I said, we like to land the plane here on the show, right? By just saying, what's one thing people can do to show up? This is our show up moment. It's a place where we take a practical step. So let's, we're going to reframe this question for the first time. Maybe we'll use it every time, right? But what's one thing we can do to see more clearly, not just show up, but what's one thing that we can do to see more clearly? Well, I'm going to make this a very explicit Christian answer. So apologies for those who are listening who aren't avid followers of Christ, but I think it's got a very, there's a distinct kind of Christian response to this. Here's what I would say is the foundational point. You should be able to say in a paragraph or less in a really clear manner, here's what race slash white supremacy is. And here is why that is an absolute threat to the kingdom of God and why therefore as a Christian, I must continually confront it. To be able to describe that for yourself will be so much harder than you think it will be, because unfortunately, almost none of us get trained on how to answer that question in a white church. In fact, if you start trying to answer that question in a white church, you're going to start getting suspicious responses to it. But I would say that, that that's not an instant, like that's the journey to get to an answer to a question like that. But it should be in our gut to say, what is white supremacy slash race? Why is that a threat to the kingdom of God? What does that mean for me as a follower of Jesus? I'm really convinced that at their best, evangelical Christian take scripture seriously and live accordingly. And so this is actually the one of the deepest root problems is that there's not a deep conviction about that question, or there's just complete confusion of what race, what's Ramsey is in the first place, right? And so I think you get a lot of well-meaning people who are like, we just need to be unified. Well, that's not incorrect, but like, why are we not unified? It's because of white supremacy, right? It always comes back to this, right? There's a principality, stronghold, demonic with social ramifications thing that we're up against. And without being able to see that clearly, we're just always kind of stumbling blindly. It doesn't mean we should be inactive. That's not what I'm proposing. When we say it's just that it's kind of goes back to that earlier part when we're trained to find the problem and then find the solution. But most of us like way understate the problem and still actually get scared even when we hear the term white supremacy. So we're like avoiding those uncomfortable kind of conversations and then responding to like really more superficial kinds of things at the end of the day. And so because we don't see what we're even up against, we're guaranteed to be ineffective in what we're doing. So Again, I'd come back to what is race, white supremacy? Why is it a threat to Christ and kingdom? What does that mean for me as a Jesus follower? That's the kind, that little summary kind of thing is like life changing if you can get there. If you can kind of understand that for yourself from a theological perspective, it's going to change how you live forever. Yeah, man, that's really helpful. Thank you. Can I just say too that when I, when we have white men in particular on this show that speak so clearly and with such great conviction, Rob is, I have two people in my personal life, Rob being one of them, that, that are able to do that. Real, well, actually three now. David mm -hmm. Spickert, let's just add him to the list, who do that really well. 
it does give me a great deal of hope. And it also reminds me that like that sort of coalition of thoughtful mm-hmm. leadership, we need more of that. We need more of you mm-hmm. to do that, to, to read the books, to, to read your book, to have these conversations so that this like fear and demystifying these conversations, we can get so we can get past that. Yeah get past it to move on because that really becomes the wall that keeps, we keep running up against and doesn't matter how much I talk yeah. about it or anyone who looks like me talks about it. It's a very different conversation when someone like Rob Shields and Daniel Hill have these conversations because you've done the work and you have that experience that you all have gone through. I don't understand that. I don't have gone through that. Right. right? And so I, I just wanted right. to, I want to thank you for putting the work in one, but also just kind of for our listeners, like, Let's be like one thing you can do also is just to make a commitment to do the work, to be part of this bigger coalition, this bigger movement. Yeah, that's really it. So thank you for that. Yeah, thank Daniel, you, it's, I, I really appreciate you, you spend the time with us today. I think it's been a really uh, thought provoking conversation, really timely one and just grateful for your work, your ministry there in Chicago. I know it blesses a lot of people in, in your neighborhood, but it also reaches all the way to at least North Carolina. And so I, I can't remember if, whether we were recording this or not for our listeners, but you know, next time you're around this neck of the woods, let's get the coalition together for some barbecue and we can show them a good time. Right, Jess? Never go. been there yet. <laughs> I've never been there yet. Well, it's it's been a privilege. And I know if I, for one, I'm going to start working on my paragraph because I think that was in, incredibly helpful, practical next step that anyone listening can just take, regardless of where they are on the journey. Mm. Start that draft and then maybe mm. have some people look at it and then work on it and, and let it evolve over time. Perfection is not the right. goal with that. It's right. just putting right. your honest opinion yeah. and, and insight onto paper. And so I'm going to, I'm going to take you up on that for sure. So I appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you, friend. This was great. Okay. Well, well, once again, we don't hit softballs around here. Goodness <laughs> gracious. Like- I was looking at the time and I was like, did we really just cover all of that in less than an hour? Cause like, that felt like a masterclass Probably. I mean, I wouldn't know. You would know. That. I mean, did you feel like you were in one of your master classes that you take? Oh, yeah, because the master classes when I'm in, always they leave me at the end wanting more, right? They have, here's the next thing to do, right? So, yes, that felt like that very much so. It's great. Yeah. I want to get like your one takeaway because I'm at the retreat. I forgot to bring my notebook down. You know, I'm obsessed about writing these notes and I didn't write the notes that I wanted to. So, but I think my, I think our listeners will know that the thing that stuck out for me was this. Well, this idea of, it all ties back to this practice of interrogation or or interrogation feels aggressive. Uh, Really, it doesn't matter to me how it feels, but that word feels like, oh, harsh. But it's just this practice of learning and asking questions. And he sort of full circled it for me at the end about what is the motivation? Why do we want to have these fusion friendships? Why do we want to dig into our cultural nuance, our white cultural nuance, our white cultural history, or the relationships that we have with our colleagues and friends and community members that, what is it? Why don't we have members of our church that look different than than everyone else? Like, why is it our church all white? We don't ask those questions and we just keep it moving because it's comfortable, it's easy. And so to ask that question at the end, to say not, how do I have this these relationships, but why do you want them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And then yeah. And then he said, because it's it because you're in captivity of white supremacy. I mean, I almost did the church clap and the hallelujah and fell out of my chair on that because it's such a strong statement that is true, but is never put in those terms. I've never heard it 
I've never heard it said that way so and so directly. Right. And it's like a white man saying it. That's why I said, if I said it, it would never land because it would feel like it's coming from a place of like bitterness and anger and hurt. Mm-hmm. But a white man saying it to another white person that you are in captivity of your white supremacy is like, holy smokes. It now we got Yeah. And it's, you can start to sink your teeth into that and say, okay, I accept that as truth. That is true. Now let's back it up. Now that I see that as sort of the starting line, let's back out of that a little bit and do the work to practice for the race, mm. right? Practice for this game that we're about to go into, which is reframing our mindset around structural racism. Really strong, really strong. I will take that forever. I mean, I'm going to use that and apply it on in conversations. It's so good to me. Yeah, yeah. Man, I agree with everything you said. I'm, I'm processing it all as we, I mean, I just, I'm not used to taking a crash course, a masterclass that, in that quick amount of time. So I'm going <laughs> to go listen to it on half speed later yeah. to really fully digest. But I think several of the takeaways for me, Jess, it really stood out when we were talking about CRT and kind of the, the conversations and the ones we need to have that we don't have. It made so much sense. Talk about clarity. Like, why are we spending so much emotional energy critiquing, especially if you're in a faith context, critiquing a secular approach, the tactics of which, can't we just back up and say, Christians of all people believe that people were created in God's image. If that's true, then the social construct of race that ranks people and diminishes that dignity is evil. Can we just start, let's, let's actually Let's start there and agree there. Yeah, let's just start there and say, what do we have in common? We both agree that that's true. And he used that abortion argument as, I think, a really powerful one, because if that was the tactic, I think you'd have a lot more people nodding along saying, all right, we don't like everything, but we like that. I mean, that almost, I mean, channel politics a little bit. I feel like that argument's been made to get people to put in office. Like, oh, well, we're holding our nose here, but here's what we like about it. I feel like we should take that approach of what do we have in common when it comes to the issue of race, and let's build positively and constructively on what we agree with. We don't have to agree with all the tactics and not let the few things maybe that divide us there. And I think it just feels like it becomes a productive conversation. And it feels like the one we're having, the one that makes the headlines, when whatever the boogeyman is, the conversation isn't helpful because all you're doing is, well, I don't agree with that. So we're just going to, it's a conversation killer instead of a conversation starter. And man, I just want to have more conversation starters with people where I work to find common ground and build coalitions with surprising coalitions of people that maybe don't make as much sense that typically don't work together. So that was my, that was one. And then the other one was this idea of how he took, if you want to really be a good neighbor, the lessons he's learned is I got to really unpack what I believe. If you're a Christian, it's what is my theology? And what is the infrastructure that I'm trying to educate? And you say, some people got the theology right, but the infrastructure wrong. Some people have it the other way, but you really got to do that analysis of what do I believe and what are the practical ways in which we're going about executing this? Is it setting up to be paternalistic or not? Is it white savior or not? Because intent is not enough. And I really need to be on that journey to set me up to be the neighbor that I need to be and that I could be but that's work. You can't just skip those steps and love your neighbor or your neighborhood well. That's a journey that you've got to really be committed to go on. And that's the one that I think he landed that plane with writing a paragraph. If there was ever a more a dichotomy or just a difference in how meaty that conversation was with how easy it feels to write a paragraph, right? He made it. He's like, man, if you're having a hard time digesting this, here's just a little bite you can take. Get out a piece of paper 
and write out that paragraph as your first step. Yeah. And said that it's going to be hard. It's not as easy as it even, that writing it a paragraph. Easy. Yeah, it's going to be hard. Easy. Well, but, because what will happen is as you begin to develop your ideas around white supremacy and the role and space in which you take up in that world, you will have questions and you'll need to do a little research to get the answers. And that's, that's fine. I mean, but again, it's the practice. We don't practice it. Ask why like, five times, right? That's a why five times. Throwback. Man, that stuff just keeps coming forward, doesn't it? It's great. It does. It's awesome. It's awesome. It's really we're, good. Hey, we're just going to bundle I mean, this I'm up. learning from this. It's easy for us to host this or write and be like, well, this is what we need to do. And this is how we need to do it. And this is what we're not doing. But like when you think through it, it's wow. I mean, that applies to my life mm-hmm. and, and my views on this equally, just differently. It's different. Yeah. We're having these conversations and it feels very white centered today. And it, fine. It's fine. But but you talk about that, the the benefit of community, doing this in community, doing it in diverse community, because community, I think he's used the word community refines. I think that's what he said. That's so true. Like we're all coming at this with blind spots or ways in which we don't see each other clearly and community helps us get greater sight so that we really do refine our lens on these things and can move into the world being better neighbors yeah. Because we can, we've sharpened our sight on these things. So, yeah. um, it's good stuff. This all is right. Great. Well, you, you got to get back to getting your retreat on. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I guess I'm just going to build a book be, Oh, there we go. I'm just going to go. Exactly. I'm going to. I'm going to go build, maybe I'll go build a retreat center. If I can't make it to Winston-Salem, I'm just going to go build, I'm going to go build, build one. one, start one bookshelf now that, at a time. Friend, that's the ambition I'm talking about. You, uh, got me beat. you win. <laughs> I'm going to go retreat. You go build a retreat. That's going to take some time. I'm going to need, yeah, I'm going to need to make sure I'm well rested for that that's one. Right. But, hey, right. thank you, Jess. Uh, hey, speaking of community refining, your friendship is one exhibit A of your refining force in my life. And I just, these conversations have been such a blessing to be able to receive. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I feel like we are getting an education. I feel like I get an education from you so many times. You're, you are my teacher and my friend. And I feel like we're on this journey where I just am so grateful for the, the community that we've built around the Just Podcast. And I hope our listeners feel the same way of just the, we just get so blessed to get some of these folks coming in as teachers. It's unreal. I'm really it's grateful. Well, I feel the same way, friend. I really do. I'm, I'm grateful for the relationship that we have and the friendship that we've hmm grown over these three seasons. And it just, today's such a, such a nice reflection of that. It's awesome. True privilege. Amazing. I love you, friend. I love it. It's it's everywhere. We're just, it's a love fest. It is. It is. Well, go have a great rest of your day until next time. We'll We'll see you. All right. See you next week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Just. In the spirit of sharing, if you like what you've heard, tell a friend about the show and give us a five-star rating and review. Many thanks to DJ P-Dog and producer Low Key for producing the music for our show. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.